Hello, guys. Uh, this is season two, episode 10. Uh, we're following up with uh, our conversation with Laura Fortmeyer uh, from Kansas, Jubilee Farms, and uh, a little history lesson from the Katahdin Association formation and the breed development from probably one of the few people uh, that, that was still around and involved with sheep uh, when this took place. So uh, we sure enjoyed uh, both of these uh, episodes, and I hope you guys uh, will as well. Uh, it's something that we were so glad to get documented. Uh, but anyway, thank you guys for listening, and hope you enjoy. What was that initial Katahdin kind of genetic form like? I mean, obviously, it seems like there was quite a bit of diversity between the animals because of the, I guess, the relative closeness to that composite that was developed. So you probably saw some some different traits come out as, as animals were bred, I would guess. But how have you seen the breed as a whole change? Is it pretty similar size, parasite resistance, hair coat? Was that more inconsistent? Um, and expressed differently, or was it pretty uniform by the time the pepper project started? It's, no, there wasn't. Uh, I think the sheep are pretty similar then to now in general. Um, there are bigger ones now for sure. There are more parasite resistance is measured more now, you know, like we have some information about that. Um, I'd like to say hair coat is more consistent. We certainly got to a point where hair coat was more consistent because there was more variation earlier on, obviously. A lot of breed up program. More, Partly because of the amount of upgrading. Yeah. So the fact is the sheep then and the sheep now look like the same breed for sure. But in the meantime, um, supply was less in demand for sure. And there are many people with sheep flocks that they wanted to convert to hair shop you know, hair sheep flocks. And if you wanted to grow your numbers, um, there were more wool sheep or right. black bellies, you know, or something else to start with that over a period of years, you could you could create new katans, right? Yeah. So that introduced some diversity, obviously, but the selection was still for a shedding sheep, you know, that had twins and mostly not horns. And, um, and so, you know, even those upgrade lines ended up at the same place, essentially, in terms of the characteristics of the breed. Uh, and now there's, of course, more sharing of animals um, across the country. So, you know, the mixing of genetics. And that, ha that ha has always happened, of course, as people try to find unrelated uh, rams and improved rams to bring into their flock. So how did, how did Heifer Project go about doing that when you bought those first Katahdins and there was only three flocks out there really, or four or five, just a handful? Um, did, would you guys use kind of an upgrade program to try to introduce something just mm -hmm. new enough to, to avoid getting too much inbreeding or how? Well, there was a lot of genetic diversity within the original pool. Okay. I mean, there was at Peel Farm and then you add the Jepson flock and whatever he did 
Um, and then heifer, you know, like I said, we had some sheep, so we bred them to Catan. We bred everything Catans, you know. So if you had Suffolk, we had upgraded Suffolk. Those were beautiful sheep. And it was pretty, you could breed the wool off pretty fast off of Suffolk because their wool's not good. Um, so don't buy any to make a sweater. Then. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've given up on my sweater dream. So let me just... uh, and Suffolk was actually an excellent base. Uh, they weren't as big then as they are now. They're still big, but um, you know they were they milked. They had um, pretty good prolificacy, and their wool was just low quality. So to get that off, you know, breed them off just took a couple of generations. Uh, so it just all got you know into the blend. I I haven't been really concerned about um, close breeding unless someone does that within a flock. The gene pool is is pretty diverse, and it was particularly so when there was a lot of upgrading going on. So I've seen a uh, in some minutes uh, going through some old files where I don't know maybe in two thousand maybe uh, there was talk about a five year plan of maybe closing the books. Um, that never happened, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, so what was the thought on that at, at some point? Did people think enough's enough, you know, or? That was studied a couple of times, really. Yeah. Um, we brought, we consulted with uh, some animal scientists. Um, maybe since you've been on the board, you've looked at that because I found that. No, old, not really. Nobody wants to. I found, we surveyed the members, yeah. we surveyed animal scientists. We, um, and, you know, it's really a philosophy kind of. If you, if you value genetic diversity, like genetic diversity has its pros and cons, right? right? So the advantage of it is that, that you have more selection potential with greater genetic diversity. Um, the downside is you have less uniformity, right? So you, you want the happy medium. Um, I know at one point when the board was kind of reviewing our policies on that, um, there were a couple of breeds, one being the Montedale, and uh, what was another one that was a composite breed between two other sheep breeds that were actually opening their flock book because they felt like they had gotten too, too small, too close, yes. And um, so basically the, um, the advantages have outweighed the disadvantages yeah, for I us hear, as a breed. I hear even now, I mean, uh, I mean, it's kind of, I think it's interesting to hear you say, well, you know, that flock was pretty diversified. This flock's only three or four major flocks and the diversity is pretty huge. And now and I hear people today say, well, I just can't find a ram that's not, you know, that's, you know, it's too close to me. And I'm like, we got 10,000 sheep registered every year. Surely you can find They're something. They're not looking too hard. They're yeah. not looking too hard. Yeah. Yeah, now okay. there is a risk if you um and because we don't have ai easily available that has helped us maintain this genetic diversity you know right. ai concentrates yeah. genetics yeah. um <laughs> right and you know again pros and cons um because you know we pretty much depend on natural breeding again within a flock you can get too close bred too and top, you're yeah. and you're reducing diversity genetic diversity within your flocks not the end of the world but um, this is really, I think the argument um, to keep an open flock book, which really just means allowing some outside genetics into the breed on an ongoing basis, right? Um, potential for that anyway, is that um, 
more genetic diversity correlates with higher vigor, okay, in general across a breed. And vigor, if you know what I mean by that, is the most important trait of this breed, in my view. You know, it's not, it's lamb vigor, it's mothering behavior, it's health and hardiness, right? Vigor. Um, And so as you reduce genetic diversity, you reduce the potential for vigor. So that's sort of this foundational thing for us, I think has supported accepting some genetic diversity while always selecting, you know, encouraging people, teaching them if need be, advising, guiding, how to select for the traits that the breed values, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, what traits does the breed value? What does the breed association say we value? That's that's the thing that really needs to be attended to constantly. Build on your strengths. And, and I think there is some, uh, so I was talking to a Texel guy who's a longtime Texel breeder in the U.S., uh, kind of a big time type of guy. And, and he's got some Katahdin. And he's like, you Katahdin guys don't have a clue how lucky you got it. And, and I feel like, you know, I see and I hear people talk about, I got a problem with this, I got a problem with that. Man, you don't realize how, just these, just these ewes having lambs out here in the snow and those lambs jumping up and nursing and living, that's a big deal. It's the number one deal. <laughs> right. well, after, after, you know, getting them bread, right. like your ewes need to get bread. So, so first makes, thing, second so, thing. Yeah, so that. it's like, you know, we get a lot of first time shepherds in our breed. I mean, I was a first time shepherd with Katahdin's. So I have bought other breeds to experience other things to make me appreciate what I got. And I and I'm I feel like we, you know, I see people with Katahdins and they're like, I don't know, I need a little more of this, or and they go try other stuff. You know, and I think I don't think they realize how easy they got it. You know, so depends yeah. what you want though. And one of the one of the great things about sheep and sheep breeds in the US at least is that we have like 45 breeds or something. We have a lot of breeds and they don't all have to do everything. They do their thing, you know, because we can crossbreed, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's okay to have a niche with some breeds are very niche, you know, the Navajo churro, even the Texel, you know, like they have a thing they do really well. Um, the Katahdin has been sort of this middle of the road, do a lot of things well, not do anything, you know, um, top of the heap, um, like they don't have the most lambs, they don't grow the fastest, maybe, you know, we could argue they're the best moms on average, but, you know, two lambs, not four, not one, you know, it's like yeah. they, um, they're moderate. Mm-hmm. And um, even though that's sort of been challenged in breeder discussions or in leadership, it's like, you know, it's okay to be moderate. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Like doing their job and doing it well and knowing what that job is. So you're talking about uh, the, the number of breeds. I, I brought up my, my stats from our Tennessee annual sheep producers meeting this year. We had um, 96 people on our meeting. Uh, we had 11 other states besides Tennessee. Since it was Zoom, it wasn't a live deal. Yeah, right. We had three other countries. So that was a big deal for us. 
we had uh, 5,500 sheep represented by the shepherds. We had a survey, you know, when they joined. 29 different breeds were represented out of 96 people. That is diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, 39% raised Katahdin's. So that's that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and our board and our and our membership, you know, when I first joined, there was like one or two hair, maybe one hair sheep guy on the board. And now, I mean, I'm president. <laughs> We're all hair sheep guys. There's like one or two wool guys, you know. Uh, right. So they can definitely it's, feel like. Oh yeah. The minority, right? So the diversity is is big, but but we're a huge part of that. So speaking about genetic diversity a little bit, uh, when we had Dr. Parker on the podcast, he was talking a little bit about the composite that they developed at OSU, and he was talking about how Heifer acquired some of those. What kind of impact did those have? How long did they stay in Heifer's flock? Were they um, incorporated very much, and what kind of impacts did those really make? Breed. He's very proud of those, yeah. Um, so that was a group of ewes that were part of a study that incorporated a bunch of breeds. Um, I think they all had some Gulf Coast native in them. But besides that, they were various combinations. A lot of them had St. Croix in them. Um, a lot of them had Finn in them, Dorset, Targi, you know, the sheep that they had at OARDC where we were. Uh, and they were split into two groups and they, one group was heavily selected for parasite resistance. Cause this is an issue in Ohio, you know, and he was really one of the early ones working on it besides the folks in Florida. Um, so they were selected for parasite resistance. They were not shedding sheep, but they all had terrible fleeces <laughs> because they were this combination. Um, and they were highly productive, you know, big old capacity use, um, highly productive. So Heifer acquired two batches of those, you know, two different years. Um, I don't know, like 50 of them. And, and we use them for upgrading. So they're, you know, they weren't Katahdin's. So they took, you know, three, at least three uh, generations in an upgrading program. Cause why not use those for upgrading versus, you know, any other kind of Random sheep? Stuff, yeah. Cause they already had a hair sheep start and a parasite resistant start. And we were in Arkansas and parasites, you know, are they huge do, yeah. in Arkansas. And we didn't know about um, management intensive grazing yet. So, um, so we brought those in and just used them as a base for upgrading. And they were very productive, good size use. It was, you know, we got the wool off in them in one or two generations. Um, Would these have been the polypay, you know, some of that part of- Some of them the had polypay in them, but so the polypay is a four-way cross yeah. and the four breeds involved in the polypay were involved in these crosses but i don't i don't remember if polypays were actually maybe some of them were polypay gulf coast native st croix crosses that kind of thing because he had acquired charles had acquired some st croix mm -hmm. um some pure st croix also by that time i don't so they, they, they kind of had some there. impacts on some early upgrades and made it a little bit easier to upgrade. Really, in, um, uh, was that in the late 80s that we got those sheep? So they were a large part of the upgrading base for heifer. Um, there, there was a few downsides of them. So I have a question uh, upgrading that I get into some debates with sometimes. 
So by the time you get to the 87.5% to become registered, by the time you've crossed to a full Katahdin that many times, how much of the other breeds do you do you recognize in the cross? Twelve and a half percent. Yeah, it's very, it's very little. I mean, well, it has it has an impact, but only that much. Right. Right. So, I mean, yeah, we this is what we had to decide early on. Like, what is the right amount? And because uh, that same letter I was talking to you about about closing the books also had a had a two year plan or something of going to fifteen sixteenths versus you know the 87 and a half so, that was discussed yeah i mean yeah that you know that's all been hashed around a few oh, times because yeah, yeah. it's it's worth asking but um i've sort of thought if it's not broke don't fix it you Absolutely. know I, yeah. and again it depends on your philosophy of what a breed should do what a breed should be i would personally like to rely on informed selection of breeding stock you know, like which lambs we keep back. And so you asked me, how has the breed changed? I would say early on, there was more variation in coat, you know? And then we got, after years of inspecting registrable animals, every registrable animal was inspected for many years, right? That was a big deal. Okay, so we did that yeah. because there was a lot of variation. Yeah. Um, and with the amount of upgrading, like if you upgrade from Rambouillet sheep, it's just gonna take you longer to get the wool off, you know, than mm -hmm. from Suffolk. So. And, and it was also inspection was a way of someone going, someone who had some experience because they were an inspector going to another person's farm and there's a whole lot of education happened, mm. you know, in those encounters. Um, so it was a good thing for the breed in general, I think. Uh, but I felt like we got to a point, well, we dropped inspection because like we got the hair coat thing down, right? Yeah. People know how to do this and we got it down. I um. I see listings online for sheep for sale, or here's my sheep, they're lambing. You're watching this too. My sheep are lambing. Look at the lambs I just had. And I look at some of the sheep, I'm like, I think we need to work on hair coat. These are Katahdins. Like, are they? They're I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Are they Katahdins or are they not Katahdins? Uh, these aren't just winter coats I'm seeing. I'm seeing sheep that need better shedding coats. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe they're newbies, you know, maybe they're, you know, they haven't seen enough sheep to know what they should be shooting for or their young sheep whatever we we have some work to do on hair coat again it looks to me like well, and, and I, these are not necessarily registered katanas yeah i'm gonna say i see people that bought sheep and the guy told them they were yes Katahdin. yes that's so what they, i'm looking so at so now they think that's a katana right they don't know it's supposed right. to shed right that they don't know that you know or they expect it to and it's just yeah. like when you have the numbers that we do now mm -hmm. um you know, it's just the big wide world out there. I realize oh, yeah. that we were more controlling early on. Now we never control the commercial flocks. Um, but you knew it, only, it was small enough. It's only you. registered flocks that we could, right. um, you know, keep accountable to the standards. Uh, so when did that change, and what was the reason for changing? Because like I know there's some breed associations that have some requirements of they got to meet these confirmation characteristics or whatever to be registered. And, and Katahdin's had that early on with, with the hair coat. They had to meet this quality of hair coat. When, when did that change? And was it primarily just because they felt that there was an, enough animals out there that were consistent enough that it wasn't as needed? Or what was the, I guess, the reason for, for changing and moving away from that? Well, one, it's, it's a lot of effort. And with the, the numbers of yeah. registered Katahdin's in the country, 
it's a lot of effort to get them inspected, to require that of people, et cetera. But there was just a level of comfort with, okay, we've gotten to a point of um, predictability with hair coats that we do not need to do that. We can rely just on pedigree for registered animals. But again, it is still up to the breeder. Every breeder is supposed to select away from non-shedding coats. It is your responsibility. And so if you're registering animals with poor shedding coats, you're not meeting the requirements, but nobody's checking on you except the, you know, except the customer. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Yeah. Trust, trust, but verify. I always, uh, mm -hmm. you trust the better you, but you always got to walk out there and look at the animal and make sure that it actually looks like it's done. Yeah. So. Well, we all start somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Catans have kind of led the way in a lot of ways for the industry for genetic selection and really pushing uh, productivity and genetics. And we're the first, going to be the first breed with, to have genomically enhanced DBVs, kind of an early adopter for estimated breeding values, one of the first breeds for parasite resistance. Um, what kind of led to that and how did that contribute to the Catan's growth? It sounds in a lot of ways like part of that was Heifer Project's focus on education and, and the, the goal of forming association that would have education and opportunity to bring people together to talk about things and to learn together. In a lot of ways, a, at least a, a portion of the breed has maintained that and, and moved forward. Um, what do you think has led to Catan's success? We can, we can keep doing that. That was a culture KHSI. I mean, yes, Heifer Project, Charles Parker, Peel Farm, they all, we all bought into that, but it's KHSI that has had that culture and that attitude of improvement, of um, selecting for sheep that work, that have a profit potential for people. Um, so, so why you're asking, why do we seem to um, often be leading edge in terms of this genetic improvement? I mean, there's a, other breeds are doing a lot too. For sure. Uh, so I don't know that we have led the industry, but we have been attentive. We've been innovative. We have been technology oriented. Um, I credit that a lot to Jim Morgan because he's a scientist, really. Uh, that's his, that's the way he views the world. That's leadership he's prevented along with others, along with breeders that um, somebody like Lynn Farmeyer, mm -hmm. Uh, he came from the swine industry. Talk about, you know, using technology, technology yeah, and genetics, <laughs> like they are well, the experts. And that, that's his, that was his bias. His, he's interested, you yeah. know, he oh, can, yeah. he can handle that. And we've had some people like that in leadership that I think have yeah, supported I, I as well. Lynn will be listening at some point, but sometimes I have to tell Lynn, look, you gotta, you gotta tone it down just a little bit. I'm from the South. I gotta go. <laughs> he, he's, he's up here at yeah. 30,000, yeah. you know, and that much. Slow down just a little bit. So, but I also think that being a relatively new breed, like you say, being in the mid eighties, we don't have a hundred years of the old way of doing things necessarily. And like you said, with Charlie, Charles Brown being on a computer in the mid eighties, that helped a lot. Yeah. And Charles yeah. Parker, you know, helping, you know, kind of um, mentoring us all along, very practical, you know, sheep, Oh, yeah. person but also understand the potential like uh for genetic improvement through through tools here's the other thing though you know because katahdin's 
we're not like other breeds and the Katahdin KHSI was not like other breed organizations. We did not have a good old boys club. Right. Like that just did not exist. So we could be different in lots of ways, right? And um, that's just who we were. And again, no prestige, no status until now, maybe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think that helped us. You know, there wasn't a this is the way we've always done it because we were making it up as we went along, you know. Mm -hmm. And and also the sheep just lent itself. It's just like a useful sheep, yeah. <laughs> right. you, you know, that makes it easy for people to raise sheep. And so let's not mess it up. Right. Let's make it better in ways that we can measure that's not dealing with emotion and pride and, you know, part of the story of KHSI, at least for the first 15 years, like it, it was, what was great about our breed organization, and we saw the other breed organizations operate when we went to mm -hmm. the North American uh, or at ASI or whatever, um, is that there was like no self-interest on the part of the, the members, the leaders or so forth. You know, they just didn't exercise self-interest in like how their flock could get more out of the organization. It really was the common good of the breed and the breeders. We didn't have any politics for 15 years. Well, <laughs> a bunch of livestock breeders with no politics, you know, except how can we, how can we move forward? Um, and yeah, yeah, didn't last forever, but. Well, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm in some chat deals with some St. Croix guys and, and I'm, I'm pushing them to, you guys need to exploit your parasite resistance. That is your greatest asset in the world. And y'all are sitting back in the corner, not, not proving it, not, not doing EBVs, not doing anything to make it better and not exploiting it to the world. So, you know, I think Katahdin's have done a great job promoting what we do best. You know, versus but also finding out what that is, like measuring it, right? Yes, absolutely. And then and then following it. You know, the other thing we did, and this is partly because of Jim Morgan and Teresa, who's also a scientist, um, and some others, you know, in leadership, is that we connected with researchers, and researchers um, sometimes are looking to work with something different. Right. You know, a lot of times they're a little bit yeah. straightjacketed, but. Um, some of them are looking for like, what's, what's the latest thing? What's innovation in the industry? Um, and they want to work with that. And so we found some of those that, um, that were willing to do some investigation. We never had any money, you know, so it often took a lot of patience. Also, Dave, because we became involved in NSIP early, um, our flock was the first Katahdin flock in NSIP. And that's, just because I got exposed to it, I guess, I thought, well, yeah, we, like, I like records, yeah. okay? I yeah. think documentation is important. I'm not as scientific as some of these other people, but my background is in biology too and, and agriculture. But um, so one flock in NSIP and then you get a few others and then they start paying attention to you. You know, they start, mm -hmm. Dave Nodder starts, you know, cause they, they were happy for any participation. We're talking the nineties. Anybody who participated in SIP, you know, because most of the sheep industry did not. Yeah. It was less than now. 
okay. Um, and so that gave us a little bit of cred, you know, and. Um, so what was it like being, because back to the St. Croix, they're like, yeah, but there's no other flocks. Somebody's got to be the first one. So if you were the first one, when was the second through 10th? I mean, when did the other flocks, was it the following year, a couple of years or, the, you know, same year? How long before other so we guys? We started like in 94, 95 with data, but we also, I don't know, we had 140 use or whatever. So right. it was enough to make it worth it. Right. Um, but it was it was not cross flock evaluation because, oh, you know, but yeah. still it was, and it was cheaper. Okay, it was way cheaper then. So um, I don't know, maybe before 2000, maybe there were 10. Right. I'm not sure. Uh, again, we, we tended to have some innovative people who were interested in Katahdin's because they were innovative. Right. And mm -hmm. so you had some good brains, yeah. you know, and who forward, not, forward thinking who weren't only thinking about I'm raising sheep on my 10 acres or 50 acres, hundred right. acres, but you know, what, what more is interesting about what's worth it. So it was just sort of a combination of, of people who, you know, we're open and intelligent and looking around, right. you know, and also saying, what's going to keep the sheep industry alive in this country? Because it did not look optimistic right. in the 90s. It doesn't okay? look super optimistic outside of the hair sheep world. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose. But, you know, when when wool, the wool markets changed and when the wool subsidy went out, like it was yeah. disaster. I remember going to ASI meetings because I represented Arkansas because there's so few sheep breeders in Arkansas at that point. And I learned a lot. Yeah. Um, so this I just learned year a lot. at ASI was all Zoom and I, I'm a Tennessee rep. And so this year, what what was intriguing is they're actually kind of panicking over the ethnic lamb market. And I'm like, hmm. what stealing lambs from the. Yeah, they can't they can't they can't afford to buy the smaller lambs at the prices they're bringing. How could it, you? I, and it turn around and feed them. I know it. So, you know, it's actually, it's actually going to affect their business model at some point. Mm -hmm. And we need uh, more sheep, but you know, there's so many sheep, there's so many jobs that sheep should be doing in this country. Right. Vegetation management. Yeah. It's completely underutilized. We do not have enough sheep in this country. Right. Uh, but I feel like that the hair sheep, particularly the Katahdin and the Dorper, we've created that. I mean, we're, we're the 80 pound lamb guy that's taken that hit, you know. Yeah, but aren't we fortunate coast? that we have an immigrant population in this country that wants to buy our Absolutely. light lambs? Cause that's what we do well. We don't do yeah. the 140 pound no. that well. So that's the other thing that also meshed that light lamb market, you know, as Katahdin started to expand, hair sheep and dorpers came into the picture. That's also when that market, which wasn't really that strong before maybe the 90s. They probably were doing more goat, you know, cause it was about- There weren't that many, well, there was, there's more goats than there used yeah. to be too, but um, you know that just sort of meshed. Um, maybe the prosperity of those immigrant populations where they could buy, you know, this is a lot of lambs that are consumed right. in this country. Oh yeah. Um, and of course the import, um, the import uh, lamb import scenario that you know changes too that has an impact. Uh, but we really don't have enough sheep in this country for the demand. Right. And the easiest way to grow it is certainly with hair sheep. Yeah. But they, we, they need all those wool sheep for the conventional 
landmark it's the food right. service the market because they're bigger yeah. you know yeah. we could yeah. do that if we do suffix right. like we could do that we just don't need to you know for the most part because right. we have this light lamb market yeah that's something i hear from people all the time is like oh yeah i love lamb you know whenever i'm at a restaurant and it's there i'll eat it but i just never see it at the store so i don't buy it and it's like that market's there people want it they just there's not as much of an availability mm -hmm. because the U.S. sheep population just isn't as large. Superior Farms has done a great job with Walmart. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of the Walmarts now will have a small lamb mm -hmm. section in it. So there's also been many people have had a bad experience with lamb they've bought. You know, there's too much variable variability right. in their experience with the quality right. uh, of that lamb. So, and that's why direct marketed lamb. You know, hopefully Explodes. it's more consistent yeah. and yeah. You know, the other thing I want to mention about why our breed um, was able to be innovative with genetic selection, technology and stuff. So, so Charles Parker, again, he went to the U.S. Sheep Experiment Station and then he went to work for ASI, right? Producer Education. And, and his partner was Paul Rogers, who's from West Virginia, who is a Katahdin breeder, okay? Was a wool breeder, you know, is an old wool guy. Like he's, those two guys are just they are the guys you know in terms of sheep so they're working at asi wool sheep raisers organization right pretty much um but they both have a hair sheep kind of mentality well you know sideline uh <laughs> interest and paul raised wool sheep in west virginia which is also a hostile environment for hair sheep, for wool sheep yeah. right so he made a conversion eventually but just because he's open-minded that's the south you know right. And, and so you have those two guys who are the producer education department at the American Sheep Industry Association. That didn't hurt yeah, because right. sure. they're innovative, they're open-minded, they're looking around, they know the researchers, they want the sheep industry to move ahead, not be stuck in the past like it had a tendency to do, you know? So when do you think that philosophy of the industry kind of changed? Because like when I talk to people out, out in Idaho, I'll talk to, to range producers and, and a lot of them are open to hair sheep. They're like, yeah, that, I mean, that, that's interesting to me. Um, you know, if I could get lambs large enough for my market, I, I mean, I would be interested in that. And, and that's a, a, a 360 uh, or 180 from, from where it used to be where Katahdin's were and hair sheep were just. Correct. Kind of, no no yeah. way, not a chance. Yeah, and I mean, it, even when I, when, I first, uh, when I first got our sheep, it was funny because our neighbor uh, was like, are those goats out there? And, uh, so we're like, no, no, they're they're hair sheep. And they're like, oh, I've never seen sheep that have those different colors before. And they're like, no, they're they're actually sheep. And I think it's taken a while for to kind of see them more in public and, and to really see um, them become a part of the industry. And the industry has has started to, albeit slowly, Except, they, yeah. they've started to accept them and they've they've been legitimized in the eyes of the industry. I mean. Obviously, we're 30, 40 years into Katahdin's being around. How long did it take for that mentality to, to kind of shift? Um, at least start to shift. A long time. I'd say that's pretty recent. Yeah. It, I don't know. I haven't been to ASI meeting in a long time. So, and so, so it's, think, it's shifted, uh, but. I think a lot of that goes back to Jim Morgan. Jim has, he is, ever since I've been involved, he has pushed and pushed, even me on a state level, you need to stay involved with your state association, 
pay your ASI dues. Mm -hmm. I know they're not hair sheep guys, mm -hmm. but you got to support them. Mm -hmm. We as an industry got to support them. And, and we as a board have always supported ASI to just let them know we're serious about you guys. You need to be serious about us. And Jim's been very active on committees, mm -hmm. you know, uh, all this time, you know, he's on some kind of panel or some kind of committee. And, and I think that's played a big part in our acceptance yeah. with them. And our credibility with, again, the researchers and animal science community, Absolutely. because we are interested in in animal science, you know, in the science and the technology, in the genetics, and um, and not just the beauty, you know, contests or well, just like not the just research stuff without without the you know research centers that are doing projects with research money. I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't be nowhere near where we are today with mm -hmm. with the funding that's going through. You know, so they had those researchers had to take risks. Absolutely. But again, a lot of this is about is this are we going to have a sheep industry in the U.S.? I mean, thirty years ago, mm -hmm. and the researchers that are interested in sheep are looking at there's a lot less of them than there used to be. There's less sheep extension specialists, and so the fact is, the hair sheep, you know, all the hair sheep, are where the where the uh, growth part of the sheep industry has been, um, you know, our number, we still aren't a growing industry by right. numbers, but it would have been really, Tough. really different if we didn't have the hair right. sheep element. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting looking at, at the state of Idaho because Idaho used to be, um, Haley, Idaho used to ship, this used to be the second largest Haley catchment area second largest right. sheep shipping area in the world, second to Sydney, Australia. Hmm. And I mean, uh, previous governor of Idaho, um, county's named after him, city's named after him. He started that Oval Bear Association. Hmm. And his personal flock was 100, 130,000 ewes. And Idaho today has about 130,000 ewes. And so, I mean, his, his flock itself was like the level that the Idaho sheep industry is at. And so, We've seen that decline, but like you're saying, I mean, the percentage of that decline would have been much higher if hair sheep kind of kind of helped to to raise that. And so it's it's definitely interesting to see how the the uh, the, the breed has contributed to that. And I mean, you you've kind of seen the whole whole process. What has that been like to see hair sheep go from being the the outcast, the, the just the the weird oddball animal that that nobody really cared for to being the leading breed for registrations and transfers the stuff you hide behind the bar so your neighbor doesn't see it right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> well um i know we're looking for a new like motto right or slogan well, it's been brought up I, I think we're just now reaching the motto we have well it's probably time for a new one but the fact is that one i i think was right yeah it's just <laughs> and now that's... it's just now being right you know and uh so yeah it's it would have to be a really good slogan for me to vote to change and we had a lot of reinforcement i mean the growth shows you that like it was a good time yeah. for a sheep like this to be available to people just because katana they're so diverse like what are the important things to still look for um how we as Catan breeders need to communicate because and I'll, I'll reframe this in a question later, but just it's because our breed is so diverse, 
it seems like people will push for, for different things, which is fine, but at the same time, I mean, you end up with 340 pound sheet, you end up with, you know, little tiny, little colored, colored sheet that, that Robert doesn't like and <laughs> looks like Barbados. And I mean, like, how do we maintain that? Um, so I don't know. And then if there's anything else that you think we should talk about. Well, I, I think the diversity is good because we all have our our own little market in our own little area. And, um, you know, just like the three of us, when me and Doug were walking across the field, you know, we all three had a different sized lamb that we wanted to, to you know, have available if we were great marketing. Mm -hmm. But we all want to manage them pretty similar. And we're in three different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. So diversity allows us to do that, and um, different management yeah. situations, resource That's right. resources that you're um, trying to maximize. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I see, um, you know, I see some people with 200 pound ewes that love them, and I see people with 100 pound ewes that love them. So, mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, I think that's a big enough box that there's room for everybody, and there's a purpose for everything. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't have, I used to think, you know, everything needed to be really, but no, I mean, after I've had four or five other breeds, I can see a use for everybody. You know, there's, there's something good in everything, you know, just that I don't necessarily need it or want it or don't mean you don't, you know. And biologically, sheep, Katad's in Canada, the same sheep is going to be bigger than Absolutely. it's going to be in Alabama. That's just what nature's yeah. going to do yeah my, i used to have friends that showed cattle and they would always come to north dakota i mean they'd get as close to the canadian line as possible without having to cross into canada to get bigger steers bigger heifers to show you know they didn't bring them home to raise them they just bought them mm -hmm. weaned them showed them mm -hmm. you know, you just, it's a some about the farther north you go you the environment know? yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. same with deer you know the deer are bigger so um so if, if I was going to say the you can be a big tent, uh, I think you can have different kinds of sheep for different situations, but I think bottom line has to be um, the maternal traits. Mm -hmm. And because we can get a bigger carcass with crossbreeding for a meat market. Right. Um, I'm not sure we can get parasite resistance. Other Even the St. Croix, I do not think are stronger. Uh, you know, then selected Katahdins. That's my debate with these guys. It's kind of off topic. So have they measured it? Have they, they measured? That's what I'm saying. No. You guys, you guys could breed that out of your breed just the same as we're mm -hmm. increasing. If you're not measuring, you don't know. In the nineties, I managed a flock of 40 or 50 St. Croix that we had for a year while some people took a trip that we had more parasite problems with those sheep than we did our Katahd. Now right. we didn't have, you know, that was early in our Katahdin flock and so forth, but every group of sheep needs to be selected for what's important to that breed. Right. Um, so for us, it's maternal traits. Um, that's why I think you cannot uh, allow for trade-offs of other performance um, objectives because the reason that people love their Katahdins, yeah, they might. Mm -hmm aesthetically like them they like their personalities they like their colors they like that they're good spots. grazers yeah. but <laughs> but really what um 
what has expanded the breed and what keeps people interested in raising Katahdins is that they, they work for you. And the way they work for you is having a couple of lambs when they're supposed to and taking care of them. That's a big and, deal. And then they are weaned and you have something to sell. That's bottom line. So um, some people want more triplets because they have more resource intensive organization or uh, operations. Some people can do with some singles um, because they have low resource, you know, input operations maybe. But, um, you know, an average of twins and hardy and, you know, it's mothering behavior, it's lamb vigor. You get a good start and, you know, people, the sheep do their jobs. That, that's foundational. Yeah, we got the queen. We just, we don't need to lose the queen. <laughs> and so one thing, madam, I guess, is Charles one thing that can happen is that um, people start to accept large birth weights, for example, mm -hmm. um, out of purebred Katahdin crossings. And, you know, if I was going to do one thing with the breed guidelines, I would say that lambs over i'd probably say 14 maybe say 15 pounds should be called mm -hmm. you know that's hard to do that like that's a good looking lamb at weaning right yeah <laughs> yeah and that's the one everybody wants yeah but that's too big for our breed yeah. Yeah. i'm not saying you just can't have it you know but an animal like that should not be propagated no matter where why it came out whether it's feed whether it's dad whether it's mom's you know genetics whatever just like cap that off and say, we, we got plenty of others. Let's right. not, let's not creep that way. You know, right. single twin, anything that's so birth weight, you know, it's got a lot of cattle breeds, it's got a lot of sheep breeds into, into um, trouble and you don't have to go there. No, you know? that's something that I'm going to start doing a better job of in NSIP is my, is my, um, my adult weight, you know, and start tracking, you know, I'm not, I forgot which EBV it is now that does the. I think there's yearling weight and hogget weight. Yeah, there's one more. Isn't there another there one? There might be an adult weight. Uh, I don't think it's. I'd say yearling weight is probably the, yes, the yearling best weight. indicator. Yeah. And that's the one that, you know, if, you, if you're not careful, even with your weaning weights, you know, you get bigger weaning weights, if you're not careful, you just get a bigger sheep. Maybe. Um, you know, ideally, though, you can have. Ideally, for us um, to select for those animals that that grow fast as lambs, okay, but do not have a greater mature weight. To me, that's ideal. Oh, it's because, perfect. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, I mean, it's possible we can do that. You know, we can have those biases. Yeah. Um, normally. Yeah, normally really growthy animals are also bigger adult animals, but not always. Right. Um, and I think in England, for example, in their sheep industry, they select for that fast lamb growth with a flat curve. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. it just pops. Yeah. yeah. yeah mm -hmm. That's something I'm, I've got to pay more attention to. We all do, you know, so that we don't get uh, an animal that's outside of what we want as an adult, you know. And the problem with birth weights is yes, that generally translates to a, a large mature rate also. Um, but 
it's it's the lambing ease issues. Like we should not accept that right. because that's why we raise these sheep instead yeah. of other sheep. Right. Is that you're 15 pounds now? Next year you're 15 and a half, then you're 16, then you're 17. Even once in a while, you know, yeah. that's a good you that may not be good anymore because you know it, it's a hard birth. You know, right. it's well, that's the strength of the cotton breed is the maternal easy care use that you don't have to really uh, just really doctor along to try to keep them alive they are very easy to, to use and they fit a great role in the commercial industry of providing a youth flock base and so as we we get off of those whether it's super large adult use that take a lot of management or use that have lambing troubles um, those are going to kind of hurt that overall overall goal yeah it'd be kind of hard to convince a cattle guy with a couple thousand cows to buy couple thousand ewes that won't take care of themselves and do their own thing. You know? There's no point. He can get it. that anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, you know, so. And so really the job of registered breeders who are assumedly selling breeding stock is to serve the commercial industry. That is their job. That's our job. Right. And commercial producers need easy care. It's just, you know, that's, it's just the fact. Education, the word commercial is misunderstood. I feel like in the South where we're at, commercial means they just don't have papers. You know, and in my mind, commercial means the guy with a thousand cows that's wanting a thousand ewes. You know, not, uh, you know, Susie over here with 10 sheep that are not registered. Sure, those are commercial too, but yeah, not but in a commercial environment that I feel like is a market, you know. Well, I think so I think that's the education part of they're we, both, we those are both it, commercial. They're both commercial, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, but not as you know. She's got more management involved in her flock than the commercial guy with a thousand ewes doesn't. He's not going to be hands on like she is. And I think the biggest difference in, in this <clears throat> communication of, of commercial that I see is is people get this idea that registered or better. Right. And commercial are the, the poor quality ones that are just for meat, where in some ways those commercial ones have to really be, they should be productive yeah. and because they're having to make their own profit without any extra registered breeding stock mm -hmm. profit. Um, and so it, there's, I guess, kind of this misperception sometimes when somebody goes, oh, this is the sheep without papers, this is the sheep with papers, this one's commercial, this one's registered. People think, oh, okay, this one's, this one's better. I, I know the pedigree, so it must be better when um, oftentimes there, there may be, uh, that may still be a, a great animal. And I think that goes back to that concept of allowing upgrades and just the process that Katans went through where it was bringing in sheep that were actually good, productive sheep. Um, even if they, they weren't you know, fully registered, they were used as part of the base to build the registered flock. Um, and it's just something that I think we have to always just monitor and provide some education to, to members about how Katahdin's fit in the commercial industry and what our role is in providing that industry with, with quality seed stock that actually continues to keep our place in the industry. Because if we just become another breed that you take onto a floor full of sawdust and you, you get a ribbon placed on it, it that that animal doesn't really make somebody money unless they're selling to somebody else doing the same thing. And, and ultimately, in order to be a, a profitable enterprise, 
be a profitable industry and not see the decline we're seeing, we have to kind of keep that, that bigger focus in mind. So in terms of industry, yeah. I mean, you get rewards in the show ring and that's, you mm -hmm. know, that's an enjoyable thing right. and, and yeah. reinforcing, um, but that's, that's just a small piece and mm -hmm. certainly the impact on the larger sheep industry. If, if we want to have a sheep industry, then it has to be profitable. It has to be practical. It, it's yeah, just the, the way best, it is. Uh, the best, I guess, speech, I guess I've heard uh, about kind of that same topic was uh, Dr. Redwine in Virginia mm -hmm. at a, a South Central meeting we had at Virginia. Uh, and his presentation was, um, you know, he sells maybe three to one non-registered commercial sheep to register mm -hmm. sheep. Mm -hmm. And, and he said, I hope when you walk through my field, you can't tell them apart. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a misconception. Like you said, some people think it's a lower quality animal. It shouldn't be, it sh you have more ability to fix that commercial animal with other breeds if you wanted to. So it shouldn't be lower quality. You should have the same culling, the same criteria that you use to select, you know, I mean, I think we can expect registered animals, A, to be actually what they say they are, right, right. in terms of genetics. Right. Um, they should be more predictable, particularly in terms of hair coat and what they produce. But I think the other thing is you can have a mediocre group of commercial ewes, um, whether it's 10 or it's 50. And if you get high quality Katahdin rams, registered rams, you can, even if that's the base you're starting from, to upgrade, you should be improving each year if, you know, from a mediocre group of whatever um, to a better ewe flock three years down the road if you have used quality Katahdin sires in that process, right. you know, and those Katahdin sires, if they are coming from flocks that are paying attention to performance that includes easy care, um, then that's a worthwhile investment. Absolutely. Yeah, we're starting to reintroduce the CAT Plus commercial mm -hmm. U program. So we're getting some traction with that and a lot of interest. In, and uh, I think the timing is right for that, you know, now too. So that'll be great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us. This has been a lot of fun. And we I, need four more hours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've learned so much just in this little short bit of time. And um, it's, it's, incredible and really appreciate your the history that you've shared and um, your thoughts um, I should put a little disclaimer on my memory you know I just went from my memory which <laughs> I think is fairly reliable but uh, maybe Charles Parker's story or Jim's or somebody <laughs> well, didn't quite align well that's too bad <laughs> man I tell you so back to the Parker deal he is so excited still today yeah in talking about all this stuff it's it's pretty it's awesome, you know. He loved it. Yeah. Yeah. We were lucky, really lucky to have him as a partner. Uh, yeah. I didn't always agree with everything that Charles said, but he's he was enthusiastic. Well, for diversity sure. makes a good, uh, yeah. a good outcome. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for sure. Are there any last thoughts that you have for the listeners that you'd like to share? Uh, hmm. I'll have to think about that. Yeah. And we can cut that right there. Please, not, 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 please do. Yep, yep. Don't put her on the spot. <laughs> yep. Uh, well, thank you so much. This is awesome. Yeah. Oh, lots of fun. I'm not used to talking that much, but it was fun. 
Well, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to these last two episodes of the Sheep Things podcast with Laura Fortmeyer. We really appreciated the opportunity to be able to interview Laura, be able to get to visit them, uh, both Doug and Laura there at the farm and get to see where they've built their operation from, get to see their pastures and their a little bit of their pasture management. Uh, even the wintertime, getting to see how they had their pasture set up was, was a pretty neat experience. So I uh, hope you've enjoyed the podcast today and the history of the breed and how the breed has come along. If you have questions for us, don't hesitate to send us an email. It's podcast at sheepthings.com. And we'll be happy to answer your questions. Uh, we have a Q&A podcast that will be coming up soon. So stay tuned for that. And uh, send us your questions so we can help answer those. Again, that's podcast at sheepthings.com. If you haven't checked out our website, that is sheepthings.com. Highly encourage you to go over there and check out some of the great resources we have there, whether that's classified ads, whether that's ability to purchase different sheep apparel and different little uh, items that you can purchase to add to your uh, add to your farm and add to your uh, just your life. Um, I encourage you to head over there, check that out. And then also you can review some other resources and videos from some of our podcasts that we've recorded and video as well. Um, if you aren't following us on social media, check out our accounts there. Uh, you can follow us on your favorite social media accounts and give us a like and uh, share with your friends if you'd like. And then also uh, if you're not subscribed on your favorite podcasting service, ask if you can hit the subscribe button so you can, uh, we can stay in touch with you and you can stay in touch with us when we have new episodes come out. So again, thank you so much for tuning in to the podcast today. Any questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to send them in at podcast at sheepthings.com. Look forward to hearing from you and look forward to bringing some new content to you in our next podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Sheep Things podcast. Stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates. We want your feedback, so you can email us at podcast at sheepthings.com for suggestions or comments. Thank you and see you later.